Before we begin today's episode, I just wanted to note, I got an invite to be a community host for a recap episode of the New Game Plus podcast, a nearly six-year running podcast about going back and playing games 15 years old or older. You can listen to me chat about various games and reminisce about fun times with the community, alongside Antonin of the Yet Another Final Fantasy podcast and Shauna of Shauna Games on YouTube. Go to ngppodcast.com and look for Retro Recap 11, or hell, go listen to episode 206, where the hosts and I played the Japan-only Square RPG masterpiece Live Alive. This podcast was the one that inspired me into creating this series, so it's very near and dear to me. And while I'm sure many of you listening already know of it, go give it a listen if you haven't. Anyway, that's enough sentimentality for the moment. Time for a word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Necromancy. Fix that little mistake you made. All you need is the body. Like, the entire body, not just bits and pieces of it, and also you're going to need a brand new control chip, or um, maybe the original control chip. Um, shouldn't you just be able to, like, use the chip in any body? Actually, like, the robot... I don't know the rules of robot necromancy, and honestly, I don't think neither did 1994's Mega Man X2. On today's episode of What Am I Podcasting For? Hello, and welcome to What Am I Podcasting For? My name's Garlisle, and this show is the chronicle of my attempts to play through the entire Mega Man series, from Mega Man 1 to Mega Man 11, and as many of the 100-plus games in between as I can. And I'd like to apologize in advance if any, like, motor vehicles or anything get caught in the background of this episode, because, um, there's a lot of construction going on outside my apartment at the moment that I'm recording, and it's gonna be this way for a while, so... But that aside, we can get right back into the Mega Man X universe with Mega Man X2, because this game begins by telling us straight up that we are six months after the event of Mega Man X. With Sigma having been defeated, and Zero no longer around to really kind of lead the Maverick Hunters, X has been seen to essentially playing cleanup duty on the remaining Maverick forces that were part of Sigma's Rebellion. That's it. That's literally the setup for this game, is just that information. And then we get a fancy version of the Mega Man X logo where, listen, one thing that Capcom figured out how to do in this game, like, last time they started playing around with some of, like, the visual stretching effects and stuff that Mode 7 chips in the SNES were capable of, this time around, they figured out how to do wireframe animation. And so there's, like, a 10-second animation of this, like, 3D wireframe of the letter X flipping into place before the title screen pops up. Capcom has some real just like, we're flexing our technology legs in this game as we're going to see, and that's the first example of it. But we can kick things right off in this game by just flying straight into the opening stage, which is set this time at a Reploid producing facility that's been taken over by Mavericks. This stage is kind of designed fairly similarly to the original in that there's a lot of subtle ways that the game tries to, like, catch you up on mechanics and make sure that you have learned each one in order to proceed, but it's not as refined as in the original game. We do get to kick off with kind of an action shot, actually, of Mega Man riding in a bike to the location while there's actually, like, additional Maverick Hunter reinforcements behind him that get shot down before they can arrive giving us one of the first glimpses into the ideas that, like, the Maverick Hunters are an organization beyond just, like, one or two major characters. But yeah, we do we do actually get a little bit of gimmickry in the stage, like, claws that grab you and try to, like, drop you into, not pits, but piles of garbage and stuff. And we get a boss at the end of the opening stage, which is just this gigantic ball-based robot in the background that you have to hit its head while jumping across, like, there's various platforms to jump across, but you don't actually, like, fall into a pit. You just have to, like, climb your way back up. It's intimidating, but it's actually extremely non-threatening. And it's not even actively trying to attack you most of the time, so it's, it goes down pretty easy. But the big thing that you will note when we start this game up is one of the first signs that this game is kind of improved compared to the first game. Unlike in X1, we begin Mega Man X2 with our dash functionality. It is there from the word go. Or, well... 
I guess from the word ready, because that's the word that flashes on screen before a stage starts. Anyway, the point is, is we don't have to worry about accidentally playing a whole bunch of this game without a mechanic that it was designed around having. And also, this means the entire game is designed around having this dash and being able to do things like dash jump. That's actually a really critical part of this game, almost more so than Mega Man X1. Which does mean, in general, to the overall approach of this game, the stages in X2 feel a little bit shorter than the stages in X1, and they feel a little bit less reliant on enemy difficulty. Not that some enemies aren't a little bit irritating, but most of them are a tiny bit easier to deal with, and maybe feel about as tanky or maybe a little bit less so, but the platforming difficulty of X2 I think is generally a little bit harder. But anyway, before we can hit the actual Maverick select screen, we do finish up the prologue stage and we get treated to a cutscene of three shadowy figures watching a screen of Mega Man and discussing how, uh, how they'd better be careful not to underestimate X, he's the one who took down Sigma, but they have a master plan in the work and all they need to do is keep him distracted by deploying some new Mavericks. And then we do get our stage select screen, which is definitely my favorite one yet. We get to see, like, essentially a world map of the area of the conflict. The names of the bosses are there, the location names, the portraits, like, everything you really need to know is actually visible all at once. Unlike X1s where you had to tab between menus, it's it's a small thing. It's impressive. I really like the way the select is done in this game. But in order to kick things off, I just kind of randomly picked a stage to go with, and I ended up picking up Crystal Snails, so let's start from there. Crystal Snail stage does have a little bit more gimmickiness to it. Like, first off, visually, it feels like an upgraded version of, like, Crystal Man stage. It's a crystalline cavern that is taking advantage of the SNES visuals, and it's really nice. But we do get some, like, gimmicky bits to it, like actual, like, frozen slopes that we can't run up. Once we land on them, we're going to end up sliding down them. We do get to use an upgraded variant of the ride armor here, which has, like, drills on its fists that can be used to punch open ice blocks. This stage has a fair amount of exploratory opportunities to it, where, like, if we use the ride armor or we, like, climb up high or low at certain points, we can find some extra little goodies. One is our first upgrade, which is the new helmet upgrade. If you remember the helmet upgrade in X1, it was pretty useless because it just allowed you to bust blocks above your head in, like, two stages. In this one, the helmet actually gives you a new weapon, sort of, in that it's a little scan reticle that flies out, and if there's something interesting around you that's kind of hidden, the reticle will lock onto that point and reveal it to you. It can help you find spots where it's like, oh yeah, no, there's actually something up above or down below me, or there's, like, a wall I can go through, or spots I can bust up with other weapons. It's actually a really useful tool in this game, and there's like, there's at least one power-up in this game that you're probably not going to find by accident if you don't use this. And one change that is nice is that, unlike the first game, there is one heart tank and one non-heart tank power-up in every single stage. And once you realize this is the case, you can more or less, like, process of elimination, okay, there's still something I need to find in this stage, and you can bring this upgrade, which is really easy to find, into those stages. The boss fight, this is probably not a boss fight you should do without his weakness. As you would expect of a snail, he spends a lot of his time hiding in his shell, and this is one of those like Mode 7 show-off bosses, because his shell freely rotates around once he gets into it, and then rockets in completely arbitrary directions. And like, it's a smooth spinning effect, as opposed to like, being locked to eight directions with different sprites in each one, it's taking advantage of that technology. It's honestly a very predictable fight, and a controllable fight, other than rocketing around in his shell occasionally when you hit him, he'll counterattack by throwing out three little crystal blobs that if they hit you, you'll be locked in crystal and you'll have to mash buttons to escape, but it takes so long for him to get to actually attacking you that you shouldn't have a problem breaking free if that happens before he can actually damage you. He does have one move that he can do when he's low on health, where he like, essentially, I don't know, like casts a spell? I have no idea what this effect is supposed to be, but you start getting this low droning noise and this screen distortion effect. All of your movements get slowed down to about half speed while he's able to continue moving at full speed for a few seconds. I don't know how that's supposed to be like a crystal effect. Um, I mean, I guess technically it fits with Snail, but anyway, uh, spoiler, you can knock him out of his shell if you bring his weakness weapon here. It speeds the fight up significantly. He'll keep running back into his shell, but it makes it a lot faster in general. 
Next stage we'll cover is Magna Centipede's stage, which is set at like a computer facility. This stage has a neat gimmick to it where there's searchlights all over the place, and these searchlights, if caught by them, will make the stage harder in various ways. For instance, extra enemies will be deployed, parts of the floor will break off, there's cubes that like slide along preset paths that'll try to catch you and crush you that you have to learn. There is a couple other fun things in this. Uh, the stage does have a couple boss fights which are notable. One of them is this Capcom flexing their, hey, we figure out how to do wireframes by making a wireframe sword that you have to fight. Literally, that's, that's all it is. It doesn't have, like, projectiles or anything. It's just a fancy sword that flies at you. The other mid-boss is, like, design-wise not interesting visually, but in the room before him, there's various scanners that'll try to chase you down and track you, and for every scanner that catches you in that room beforehand, you'll see an extra animation when you get to this boss where those scanners, like, are read by him before he starts the fight, and for every one that he does, he will actually get stronger and stronger until he's, like, a legitimate full boss on his own. He gets extra damage, he gets shields, he gets new attacks, like, it's actually really kind of neat. As for the boss here, the boss of the stage, Magna Centipede, if you thought I said Manga Centipede, like Japanese comic books, you might not be that far off base. He teleports around and strikes these really just, I want to say chuny poses, but I know that's not a term many people know, but like just edgelordy nonsense poses as he like telekinetically manipulates sections of his tail to fly off at you or like, I don't know, I guess it's supposed to be him pretending to have psychic powers when it's actually magnets, I don't know. If you bring his weakness weapon, you can break off his tail, which makes this fight drastically easier, especially because he has the ability to, like, just drag you in and poison you with his tail, and there isn't really anything you can do about it as far as I can tell. And the poison just causes you to, like, you'll jump, like, slightly lower each time you do it, you can't fire as fast. It's actually really kind of a neat little status effect, because the more that you try to do under it, the more you feel the effects of it. But yeah. After two bosses, whichever two bosses you pick, we get an extra cutscene, where we see the three shadowy figures, the X-Hunters, and they're realizing, like, oh, okay, so he is tearing apart the Mavericks that we've sent out, maybe we'd better do something ourselves. We get back to X at Dr. Kane's lab, Dr. Kane being the guy who found X, if you don't remember from X1, it's it's entirely like manual lore up to this point. But now we actually get to see the illustrious Dr. Kane, who, true to form, is an old man with a beard and a cane. And we have a message from the X-Hunters saying that they've stolen the parts of Zero's body, which I guess, you know, Zero died last game, but I guess he is a robot, and so Dr. Kane's been working on like, repairing him and stuff. But before the repairs can be finished, the X-Hunters have gone and stolen the parts of Zero's body, and now we're going to have to track them down. And now we get what is actually X-2's, like, side gimmick to it, which is rescuing Zero. From here on out, once you've beaten two bosses, three random remaining stages are going to be selected by the different X-Hunters, and they will appear within those stages on the map. If you select those stages, somewhere in every stage in this game, sometimes not easily accessible, sometimes you need specific weapons in order to reach these spots, but in every single one of these stages, there is a hidden boss gate. And those boss gates will stay sealed unless there is an X-Hunter in the stage, in which case going to that gate will allow you to fight that X-Hunter. And if you defeat the X-Hunters, you get the corresponding part of Zero's body back. One thing that's really important to note is that if you do not defeat the X-Hunter in a stage, but you go ahead and defeat the boss of that stage, the X-Hunter will leave and not come back, and you will essentially permanently miss out on the chance to get that part of Zero's body back. You will have to restart the game or use a password from before that point in order to do that. Of course, this is entirely optional whether you want to go for these X-Hunter fights, but this will actually affect something at the end of the game. So there's three X-Hunters we have to fight. One is Agile, who, true to his name, he's this long, lanky, sword-bearing X-Hunter with just the stupidest, cockiest smirk on his face. He'll either use his sword to parry your attacks while dashing, or he'll, like, jump up into the air and release a large sword cleave at a semi-random height. Because he only has, like, these two different moves, you can basically, like, climb up into the corner of the wall, wait for him to attack you with a high sword dash, land under it, attack him, and then he'll probably dash at you to like, deal with that, and you can just jump over him and climb to the other wall. It's 
easily loopable, so once you figure that out, he's not tough at all. There's Violen, who is a big, beefy, bruiser, like, gorilla-type robot. He jumps around, he's got, like, a shotgun spread bullet attack that he can do, or his main thing is to just stand still and throw out this giant mace that's on his back that just starts bouncing around the room semi-randomly. Assuming you have a few heart tanks by the time you actually face him, you can basically just get up in his face and just beat the crap out of him before, like, he manages to hit you enough, because that mace just... It is somewhat random how that thing bounces, but it takes so long between hits on you generally that you can just damage rush him. The real hard one is Surge, the old man. He's a fairly slow boss riding on a spiky platform thing, but the main thing about this fight is that the platform frequently shields him and just prevents the shot from hitting him. You have to aim like specifically at his forehead to catch just above the shield, and whenever you do, he'll like jump up into the air and fire like a spiral outwards of bullets, and you can fortunately jump across his own platform safely as long as he's not on it. It's just really tough to consistently deal damage to him, and I found him to be the most irritating one, and it took me a few tries compared to the others. But yeah, if if you want to, while playing X2, you can do this, and you'll get all three Zero parts, and a bonus cutscene of Kane confirming like, oh yeah, sure, we can use this, we'll be able to repair Zero, we have a new control chip getting ready to go, he'll be ready to back you up in a few days. But we won't see the effect of whether or not we did that for a while, so for now, it's back to the other six Mavericks. Which, let's go hunt down Wire Sponge. Wire Sponge's stage is, I think, a stage that is vastly underutilized. It's a, like, jungle industrial setting again, but the idea is, is that it's a weather control facility. And so there's, like, these orb things that you encounter throughout the stage that whenever you encounter them, a random weather's going to be applied to the stage. Sunny weather that makes enemies more active, or, like, winds and rain. But if you actually have specific weapons in this game, like Crystal Snail's weapon, you can hit the orbs with those weapons and manually force the weather to change. Which, man, that is such a neat little gimmick, and it's really a shame that the effects of these weathers are ultimately, um, not much. It's subtle differences in enemy patterns, and if it's rain, it might slightly affect your ability to jump. I think it's a real shame that this gimmick is just so underutilized in this stage. You don't even have to use it in order to access any of, like, the upgrades or anything. One of them's basically just out in the open, and the other one... The other one is a heart tank that's literally on the starting screen. It's just, you have to climb up the left wall into a hidden gap, and the item's just sitting there. Again, like I said, you want the head in order to radar out where certain secrets are. This is a stage with a really neat gimmick that just kind of fails. Wire Sponge, who is basically a sea cucumber, to be clear. We're not talking Wire Sponge Squarepants here. He's, he's a green sea cucumber thing. Basically, his idea, as the name Wire suggests, is that he's basically got, like, a grappling hook as a weapon. He can lash it out at you like a whip. He can grab onto the walls or the ceiling to pull himself around. He can spread seeds that, like, stick out little thorny vines that stay where they are, but you can destroy them if you want to. There's a weird bit where when he's near defeat, he'll, like, get enraged and go invincible and rain down some lightning for a few seconds, and it seems to mismatch everything else he can do. I don't know. He's actually probably one of the more fun boss fights in this game. He's not too difficult either, regardless of what you come into the fight with. I don't know. I like this a lot. Next up, we're going to chase down Wheel Gator on the Dinosaur Tank, which, yes, is literally a gigantic dinosaur-themed tank that is busy rampaging through a city, which is a really neat setup, but the stage itself doesn't really have much in terms of interesting gimmicks. It's one of those visual design first stages, as opposed to game design. In this stage, if we have certain various tools available to us, we can make a fairly tricky jump in order to get to our X-Buster upgrade for the game, which, just like in X1, allows us to overcharge our weapons and get new effects off of them. They did, however, change the way the extra level of the Buster charge goes, where now 
you get like one initial burst shot that is basically similar to your standard charged buster, but then Mega Man continues to glow, and the next time you press the button, he fires out an additional charge shot. This works on bosses in that the additional charge shot still works while bosses are invincible. It specifically ignores invulnerability frames. So this actually matters for bosses now. One thing I will say, there's a lot of bosses in this game that kind of like don't take a whole lot of damage from their weakness weapons. This upgraded charged X-Buster actually makes a big difference in this game. Anyway, Wheel Gator is a boss that I like conceptually, but that I don't think is actually super fun. He spends a lot of time dived into the floor, which is like an undulating pit of mud. He'll try to knock you off the walls by sending wheels that run along the walls and stuff. And then like when you're close down to the mud, he'll jump out and try to grab you and you might have to wiggle free if he catches you. He can also like dive across the arena and drill into the walls, making it a little bit trickier to grab onto them. Mostly the thing about Wheel Gator is just that he spends a lot of time invincible. And like anytime you hit him, he's going to respond by just diving back under the mud unless you deliver a follow-up hit at an extremely precise moment. Which, I mean, catching a boss in a loop sounds nice, but when that loop involves like 10 seconds of downtime between hits, it, it kind of loses a lot of its luster really quick. Next up, we're going to drive off to Overdrive Ostrich's stage at the Desert Base. And I say drive off because in this stage, we get to pick up a speeder bike super early in the stage and actually drive one. This is the same kind of bike that X was riding in the intro. This thing can fire shots. You you do have the ability to turn it back around. It's not like a one-way like auto-scroller section like Waveman stage or anything. This is an actual change-up to your mobility. If you manage to maneuver this thing well enough and take advantage of like dashing and jumping off of ramps and stuff, you can carry this basically all the way to the end of the stage, almost up to the boss himself, although it'll be force removed from you before the boss. The big thing to note as the payoff is that if you get it to the end of the stage, you can drive it across a long row of spikes in order to grab a heart tank at the very end of that. But actually, this is harder to do than just using certain other weapons and upgrades that you get in order to kind of cheat your way across that long line of spikes you're not supposed to be able to jump across. And speaking of upgrades for aerial mobility, if you brought Wheel Gator's weapon to this stage, you can use it to open up a secret path that reveals another Dr. Light capsule. And there we get our boots upgrade. And this time, because we already have the dash, the boots upgrade gives us the air dash functionality, which literally lets us just do a horizontal dash while we are in the air. Now, notably, you can't dash jump and then do an air dash again while you are in the air. You can only do it from just like a standard jump. But it provides you with a greater variety of aerial options in terms of maneuvering. You can use it to fit through certain gaps or like very specifically control your movement horizontally when you need to. It opens up a lot of options and I'm pretty sure the air dash is an upgrade in every Mega Man X game from here on out because it just, it just works really well. Anyway, at the end of the stage, we jump on a missile, we literally shoot it down while we're riding it because we're badasses, and we drop into the desert. And that's where we fight Overdrive Ostrich. It's a long, uneven battlefield where the ostrich can just run at us and occasionally even run off the side of the screen, or he'll like literally prance and we have to slide under him. It's kind of ridiculous looking. Occasionally he'll jump up and fire a bunch of like boomerang shot things that then rain down. Like they're shaped like boomerangs, but they don't act like it. It's just kind of a fairly... I don't know. There isn't anything too remarkable about this fight to describe, but it is actually fairly fun? Question mark? Next up, we'll go after Flame Stag in the Volcanic Zone. Act 1. Uh, uh, I mean, just the Volcanic Zone. We're not on the Sega console anymore. Can't make that joke. As you would expect from a stage named Volcanic Zone, this has everything you expect from a volcano stage, including a segment where you outrace a bunch of lava in order to make it to the top. Flame vents and walls, you know, platforms crumbling into a magma lake, all that jazz. Something that did surprise me, for the fact that we have to basically escape a volcano erupting type segment, you don't actually immediately die if the fire catches you in that stage, <laughs> which feels surprisingly generous for a Mega Man game. I don't know. 
As for Flamestag himself, he's kind of like Mega Man X1 Sigma in that he likes to like bounce up and down the walls of the canyon that you fight him in. He also likes to throw fireballs along the ground, and he likes to like charge at you and try to catch you for this ridiculous and unnecessary suplex combo that he wants to do. And mostly, though, it's best to just kind of wait for him to come back down, shoot him, and then probably jump over him when he tries to dash at you. Like, he's not a particularly difficult boss. For all of his speed, most of his speed is usually not directed at you. Next up, we head to the junkyard to hunt down Morph Moth. This stage, true to being a junkyard, has some, like, you see a lot of wreckage in the background. You see, like, robots that honestly look like they're being hanged from cranes. It's kind of a little bit creepy. We get a bunch of stuff with, like, magnets, and, like, there's a mid-boss that is, like, a small bug robot possessing a larger body. You have to blow up the body in order to expose the bug temporarily and try to shoot it down before it jumps into another one. And speaking of creepy zombie parasitic robot bugs, there's also bugs that try to land on top of you, and if they do, for a few seconds, they'll like cling on to you and one of your buttons is just going to be constantly getting pressed. Like you'll be constantly jumping or dashing or shooting or something just at random. It's it's actually like generally a really neat thematically stage that is well realized. One thing that is less neat about the stage is the location of the hidden body armor upgrade, which is a pain in the neck, in that you will probably never find this by accident. You need to use Wheel Gator's weapon to bust it open, but there is zero visual indication on where in the floor you actually need to bust it open. You have to find this spot by using the scanner basically throughout the level until you find it. But this time, the body armor upgrade doesn't just give us half damage taken. It also gives us access to what's called the Nova attack, which is a new weapon energy gauge that isn't refilled the usual way. The only way to fill it is actually to take damage from projectile attacks. The Nova attack uses its entire gauge in one go and can only be used when it's full, but pauses the screen and hits everything on it. Basically, it's just a super finisher as like a revenge thing. It's really neat to have this as a backup tool in your kit. There's a couple places in the game where this can definitely make certain things easier, including probably one of the hardest bosses in this game. I don't know, it's just kind of neat that they decided to do more than just like, hey, you take half damage in this game, and actually gave something new to the body armor as well. Morph Moth himself starts out basically in a cocoon, hanging from the top of the ceiling, throwing a bunch of junk at you as he spins around and stuff. He is a two-phase boss, in that once you take him down to about half health, or if you just wait for like two minutes for some reason, he'll just decide to do this anyway, but eventually he'll snap the string and he'll like create a new one and pull himself off the top of the arena and the ceiling will bust open and the actual moth himself will fly down, now fully hatched or whatever, and attack you by like leaving random pollen spreads below him that deal damage or firing rainbow lasers? Question mark? I don't know. I don't know exactly what they thought they were going for here, but they went for it. Finally, we get to Bubble Crab at the Deep Sea Base, which, as you might expect, is basically a big open underwater stage that kind of pretends to have this mid-boss with this, like, fish ship with a bunch of different weapons that sort of keeps up with you. And then at the end of the stage, you emerge into this underwater base, and the water drains away, and then you go fight Bubble Crab in there. It should be a neater stage than it actually is. It just ultimately doesn't really do much that's all that interesting. Unlike, say, Launch Octopus, where at least I could mention there was, like, no less than 60 mini-bosses. I know that's an exaggeration, don't worry. Bubble Crab himself is a very active and very hard-to-predict boss. The water level in the room is constantly changing, which constantly messes with your jumps. He likes to wrap himself up in a bubble shield that you have to pop with your attacks, or leave, like, bubbled-up missiles floating on the surface of the water that if you accidentally pop those, they'll home in on you. He likes to try to jump up and, like, grab you I don't necessarily think he's, like, super difficult, because most of the time by this point I have a lot of health, but his unpredictability and variety of moves would actually make him fairly difficult to fight as your first one, I think. Anyway, that covers all of the bosses. Let's, let's hit up their arsenal that they've left for us. So, the weapons overall in X2, I want to say I don't think they're that bad. There's one weapon in this game that I don't consider particularly great. The rest are actually fairly even, and that's a really interesting situation 
because first off, it makes it hard to like put them in an order of which ones are my favorites. But also, with the fact that the fully charged, like upgraded X Buster is pretty good in this game and stuff, it does kind of disincentivize some of the weapons to not have them be like as extremely powerful as like Storm Eagle's weapon was or anything. I don't necessarily hate this weapon set, and as we'll get into, some of these have like kind of neat applications. I just find it kind of hard to get super excited over any of these. That said, we'll kick off the worst on the list being the Strike Chain. This is basically a short-range hookshot attack. It does like a decent amount of damage, but it's a little bit slow to come out. It does have the effect that you can use it to grab onto walls and it will like pull you towards them, but excluding like one or two jumps in the entire game, it's not really going to change what you can and can't do with jumps. Mostly this tool is actually like a popular use when speedrunning the game, because you can get just that extra tiny little bit of speed over dash jumping if you can grab onto certain walls. But it's dangerous to rely on that to make a jump you otherwise couldn't, it's tough to time right, and again, the gain over just moving normally is tiny. So this is like, genuinely it feels like a speedrun only weapon. The charged version of the strike chain, by the way, just makes it bigger and go further and pull you a little bit faster. No thanks on this weapon, though. I appreciate what it's trying to be. If it's, like, worked diagonally or above you, kind of like the wire in Mega Man 5, this actually could have been cool. But no, it's only a straightforward hookshot, so. Next up is the spin wheel. This is kind of a ground-based projectile, like we've seen with, like, the bubble lead and stuff, except it, like, bounces off of walls sometimes and like can cross small gaps because it's got some momentum to it but also it drags to a stop and you have to wait for it to vanish before you can fire another one the charge shot attempts to be a little bit better by just exploding the wheel when you fire it so that it fires projectiles in eight directions at once which is like one of the only ways to actually get a shot really going above you in this game, which is going to come back up in one of the later stages. But having to charge it up to get to that functionality doesn't feel great. The main value of the spin wheel is that there is a couple different upgrades that require you to use this weapon in order to bust open the path, but otherwise... Uh... The bubble splash is pretty alright. It basically fires a stream of bubbles out in front of you that kind of rise upwards in a random spread. In many ways, this is actually similar to from the Mega Mari episode, The Butterfly Stream, which was like the best weapon in that game. But this one has like limited range and it feels like it doesn't have particularly impactful damage numbers either. What is kind of neat is that if you fully charge it up, it will start up a barrier effect that just constantly spawns like a twister of bubbles around you that will punish anything that gets too close, which is kind of neat, but you can't actually continue firing the weapon while this effect is up. You have to like switch off to a different weapon entirely and that'll turn the weapon off. The bubble contact doesn't actually do that much damage, so some stuff isn't even going to be killed by it, so it doesn't really function like the skull barrier in Star Crash did as a protective weapon while platforming, so the charge isn't that great. Although, weirdly, the charge does let you jump super high underwater, which is required for all of getting to one upgrade in Bubble Crab stage, and that's it. Like, I like weapons that have secret utility powers, kind of, but having it only matter for one thing in one stage kind of sucks because you're not that likely to find it. I don't know. The base weapon's okay, though. Speaking of okay base weapons, the Sonic Slicer, which fires a couple projectiles that, like, start taking off forward, bouncing off walls, and they'll, like, arc upwards a tiny bit each time. The damage on it isn't that bad, which is a good part. Kind of has some spread to it. It's kind of okay as a general purpose weapon. If you charge it up, first off, if you charge it up, you have to make sure that the base weapon has already left the screen, because if you fire the charged weapon while the base weapon is still bouncing around, it will do nothing, and that's really dumb. But the charged shot fires a single shot into the air that splits into like five different shots and comes raining back down. Again, one of the few ways to actually reliably hit above yourself. This one is technically less interesting and probably a bit weaker overall than the bubble splash, but I think it has the advantage of being useful against, let's say, a really pain in the neck boss or two. So there's that at least. 
Getting into the upper half of the weapons, we have the Crystal Hunter. This is a lobbed, kind of like a glue shot. If you hit a small enough enemy with this, it will trap it in crystal, and that crystal can then be used as a platform for a few seconds. We've seen weapons like this before, with like the ice shot and stuff that just stopped enemies, but the main problem with them was sometimes you needed to just destroy the enemy and not just freeze it in place. This essentially allows you to get around the enemy safely, it allows you to take advantage of frozen enemies to get places you couldn't before. I really like this weapon. Unfortunately, its charge effect is pretty much useless, which is that it basically casts that like game slowdown effect that Crystal Snail did, which I guess theoretically could help with precision platforming, except a lot of the super tough stuff requires you to be using other weapons anyway, and you can't change weapons while the effect is active. Then we get the Silk Shot. The Silk Shot is actually like drawing on junk in the area and lobs a shot of it, which then explodes in four directions. It's fairly as standard for a weapon. It has some decent coverage. If you charge it up, it creates a giant cluster of junk in front of you, which interestingly, it does this by dragging stuff from the outside of the screen so it can hit stuff coming in, and you can hold on to this cluster and just like run it into enemies. It's generally a fairly decent and fairly effective and versatile weapon. One fun easter egg about the silk shot is that there are certain rooms in this game where your scanner will tell you there's something in the room, but there's nothing to interact with. But if you charge up the silk shot in these rooms, instead of pulling in junk, it will just pull in an infinite number of like weapon energy capsules or health refills to instantly recover your sub tanks. It's a neat little secret effect, taking advantage of the fact that it is pulling from your surroundings. Coming in at number two is going to be the Magnet Mine, which is probably my most favorite of the general purpose weapons. The Magnet Mine projectile is a little bit slow, but you can press up or down while it's active to make it travel up or down in order to like latch it onto enemies above and below you. It has decent power thanks to the explosion afterwards. If you charge it up, it transforms into like a black hole effect, where instead of latching onto a target and exploding, it will continue to pass through like walls and enemies and everything as it just steadily deals damage. It's slow to move, but if you need to deal with an enemy in an awkward location, you can deal with it no problem using this. The Magnet Mine is just in general an effective weapon. Again, not super exciting, but it has good functional range to it. Probably the best weapon in the game, though, is the Speed Burner. The base shot is fairly straightforward. It's just a fire shot that leaves a trail of flames behind it, which the trail itself can actually add some extra damage and makes the Speed Burner a pretty powerful weapon against a lot of enemies in general. But... If you charge it up, the Flame Burner gives you basically an attack dash where you completely ignite and dash a bit forward and get all the momentum of a dash jump at the end of it, which means you can jump regularly, air dash, and then release a speed burner charge to get even more distance and speed. I really like this weapon. I mean, the fact that you have to charge it up does limit its use a little bit, but I love the way that this weapon technically doubles as like a mobility and control option, while still being a solid weapon at its baseline too. It's just, I feel like the thing that really remarks almost all of X2's weapons is that they have some form of utility, but Speedburner in particular has both solid base weapon ability and also solid frequently usable charge ability. So, yeah. Having said that, we've taken stock of our arsenal. Now Dr. Kane is going to tell us, like, hey, we've tracked down the base of the X-Hunters. You should go take them out. We're going to go to their base at the North Pole. This time around, the X-Hunter stages are actual stages. I kind of complained about this a bunch with X1. I almost said just complained about it a little. No, I complained about it a bunch, that the stages were basically like a room with a gauntlet of enemies, and then a boss, and then a gauntlet of enemies, and then a boss. The stages in the X-Hunter Fortress are still fairly short, but like this is a more traditional Wily's Fortress setup. The first stage in particular feels like it's a revision of a lot of the gimmicks from the opening stage, including one with a robot that drags 
together the two walls of the corridor that you're climbing up vertically, and you have to race it to the top. This time we get some notably more difficult configurations that are going to require some mastery of the dash jump in order to climb up. At the end of the stage, we get our rematch with Violen, the bruiser ex-hunter. He is basically the same fight that he originally was, but this time he randomly teleports a couple solid blocks onto the screen to make his like jump patterns and the bouncing of the mace a little bit more unpredictable, but he's still a joker. Stage 2? This stage is an extremely tight series of corridors with enemies positioned along the walls above and below us that we have very few weapons that are actually well-suited to deal with in this case. And also some really kind of difficult platforming challenges involving like moving platforms and spikes and having to like wall jump around things and honestly it's a fairly difficult stage and then at the end of it we have to fight one of the most difficult fortress bosses we've had in a while which is the refight with surges this time the old man is actually hiding in like a giant wall tank thing that has multiple turrets before you can even start damaging surges himself you need to destroy the turrets on the front each turret has different projectiles that it fires at you. The platforms that you are on while trying to do this are moving up and down alternatingly, and he is slowly moving forward and crushing them as you destroy the turrets. And even once you do destroy the turrets, you now have very little room to dodge his final set of different projectiles, and he's riding up and down in this like armored casing that you have to hit the top of his head in order to actually deal damage. He moves very quickly. The weapon that is best against him is the Sonic Slicer's charge shot, which which frequently catches on the top of his, like, turret thing and just fails because it's being deflected. Like, if you don't figure out proper positioning for this boss and a weapon that works really well at blowing up the turrets very quickly, silk shot. This boss is actually really difficult. I think I'd spent more lives on this boss than I did on the final bosses, which, wow, okay. Stage 3 is a little bit of a gimmicky stage. The first half of the stage, we have to use... It's this weird platform that has been in a couple stages up to this point, where when you land on it, it changes direction, and this time it rotates between, like, the four different basic directions every time you land on it, and you have to maneuver this platform to actually go where you need to and climb up a shaft. There's a similar thing in Super Mario Bros. 3 from a few years back at this point, but it's basically kind of this puzzle of figuring out how to get this thing up there. And then in the second half of the stage, we either have to use the Speed Burner Charge or the Crystal Hunter's ability to freeze enemies in order to cross over giant spike pits, but the most notable feature of Stage 3 is the gauntlet that is hidden within it. Accessing this gauntlet requires you to use something like the Crystal Hunter to freeze an enemy from a previous room, and then it's a series of like very tight and dangerous jumps that includes a spot where you have to like air dash through a tight-knit set of spikes and then turn around and fire the speed burner charge in the other direction in order to avoid falling into spikes. And if you make it through all of this, you will fall down a pit with a one-up and you will land on the rest of the stage. Except, if you actually slide down the wall of this pit, you will find a hidden path to an empty room. Except, if you have every power-up in the game at this point, and have full health, you will actually find a Dr. Light capsule here. If you go up to this capsule, Light will literally say, You are so cool, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy, and when you jump in, Mega Man will learn to perform the Shoryuken, the flaming uppercut move that Ryu and Ken are known for in the Street Fighter series. This is a harder move to perform than the Hadouken was in X1. It's forward, down, down forward, which is a little bit less natural of a move on a D-pad than an actual joystick. You can only do this at full health because it's an uppercut that is like sharply diagonal in nature in this game. It can be hard to hit certain enemies with it, but just like the Hadouken, this basically allows you to one or two shot almost everything in the game. So it's actually worthwhile as a pickup in these final stages. I think the speedrun route for this game actually picks up all the upgrades specifically so it can get this because it will speed up every remaining boss fight so much. And speaking of bosses that are above you and easy to be hit with a Shoryuken, we get the Agile refight. Remember how Agile was this lanky dude with a sword and stuff? Yeah, he's been turned into basically a floating platform overhead for no reason. I don't know how to even begin to explain this boss. He, like, extends out parts of a floor next to him and then drops them down, or he'll, like, ram into the walls 
when you're trying to climb up to them to get to him, and occasionally there'll be missiles that fly in, and half the screen will explode, but it's hard to tell which, and I really don't understand this boss. I don't understand why they transformed him into a flying platform thing. I don't know. He's really easy, by the way, once you realize that the Magnet Mine's ability to be aimed upwards makes it not just his weakness, but very easy to hit him. So, X-Hunter Stage 4, we get a classic for Mega Man. We get the Boss Gauntlet Teleporter Room. By the way, this is the worst teleporter room in the series so far. It is large, and you have to climb around it to get to all the teleporters, but all the hitboxes on stuff are just, like, a little bit big enough to be awkward. The bosses themselves do not drop energy. Instead, the energy is placed onto platforms in the middle of the arena, and it's like four tiny energy capsules you have to pick up instead of just one big one. I don't know, it's dumb to complain about the layout of a boss refight room, but it's a bad layout, and I'm going to complain about it. Anyway, when we blow up the eight Maverick refights, the entire fortress starts blowing up, and we get a message from Sigma of all people. Oh hell, son, he's back. Well, we knew he was back if you saw the, like, bonus extended ending bit in X1 that you had to wait on the end screen for. But anyway, it's time for our final stage, which is X-Hunter Stage 5, which is a big disappointment, actually, because for some reason, this stage is literally just the Magna Centipede stage's first half up to the first miniboss. Literally, it's exactly that stage. Nothing has changed. I don't even begin to understand what they were thinking or why they did this. I get the feeling with how short certain stages were and stuff, Maybe this game was under a bit of a time crunch, and so they just they just went, uh, we we don't know what to do for the final stage. Uh and so they just panicked and reused another stage, but um yeah. But we get to the mid-boss room here, and we find Sigma, who is definitely back. Turns out the X-Hunters brought him back, and that's not the only person they brought back. A zero in black armor jumps down next to Sigma, and Sigma's all like, oh hey, X. I'm back, and look who I brought with me, and he's none too happy that you let him die. But then the real Zero busts through the back door with a trio of charge shots, including a use of the Z-Saber for the first time, which is basically a sword that he swings that creates a shockwave, and that blows up the fake Zero, and Sigma's all like, Listen, Zero, I, I know about you, I know your secrets, you were destined to follow me, and Zero's like, Maybe, but, you know, I actually don't like you, so whatever. Which should raise some question marks, and we'll come back to that, but Sigma runs off, Zero busts open the floor and tells us to go after Sigma, and he's gonna blow the place up, and so we jump down to our boss fight. If we saved Zero. If we didn't save Zero, instead of there being a fake Zero summon, Sigma's actually rebooted Zero and revived him for us, and we're going to have to fight Zero. Zero is a fairly difficult boss. First off, he is invulnerable to everything that isn't charged Megabuster shots or the Speed Burner. He will literally deflect everything else, including just basic Megabuster shots. If you try to climb a wall, he'll, like, dash over to your side of the arena and slam the ground and send projectiles flying up that'll hit you. If you're on the ground, he'll do a trio of shots that will negate your own shots as they come across. He would be really difficult if the fact that he only basically has these two moves didn't mean that you can catch him in just a loop. Like, it's a good thing you can trap him in a loop, too, because um, every time you die during this stage, and in fact, every time you die during any of the X-Hunter stages, you have to restart the entire stage over. The only, like, sort of exception is the boss gauntlet, where the bosses will stay gone. But for this final boss gauntlet, because we are at the final bosses, if you beat Zero here and then lose to Sigma, you're gonna have to fight Zero all over again, complete with all the cutscenes and everything. Unlike in X1's final stage, there isn't a quick way to recover your weapon energy and life energy and sub-tanks and stuff. Okay, I shouldn't say quick. That was not a quick way, but it was an efficient way that didn't require game-overing and going to a different stage. If I sound a bit angry, it's because I really, really dislike that bit. Regardless of whether we had to fight Zero or not, we fall down into an arena that is going to be where we fight actual Sigma. Sigma this time has traded his saber for a pair of Wolverine claws, and so he's going to be dashing around and slamming those into us, trying to teleport above us and dive into us. He's got various electric projectiles he's going to throw at us. He's not as loopable 
as X1 Sigma was, but fortunately, they decided against having Sigma's final boss fight here do as much damage as the original ones did. You have a lot more survivability in this fight in general. They just decided not to make it do as obscene an amount of damage as they had last time. Plus, he doesn't take a bajillion hits to defeat this time. After we deal with Phase 1 Sigma, we go on to Phase 2 Sigma, which no return of the giant fursuit this time. Instead, it's time for more wireframe effects. Yep, we get a wireframe Sigma head that comes and fights us. If you're using any weapon that isn't the strike chain, because of course they have to pick the worst weapon to deal with the final boss. If you're using any weapon but the strike chain, you have to strike specifically in its eyes in order to deal damage, which oftentimes it's not even necessarily facing you. And its attacks are basically to either like fire a laser along the width of a screen, it'll shoot out a couple of like orb things that will transform into random enemies, which by the way means you can actually recover health off of these enemies during a fight sometimes if they drop items. It's weird to be able to heal yourself off of like farming enemies in the middle of a boss fight, but whatever. As he gets low on health, he can occasionally try to start teleporting and appear on top of you, and if he manages to do that without you dashing at the right time, then you'll be caught inside him and just repeatedly take small amounts of damage, but you can still damage him while you're like caught inside him, and you just kind of have to hope that he's close enough to die before like you end up running out of health or sub-tanks, but he's not really necessarily that hard of a fight, he's just hard to perfect. But again, they drastically turned his damage down compared to the X1 Sigma fight. So he's actually much easier, even though I swear his HP gauge must be like four HP gauges in the background. They don't even bother showing you an HP gauge, they just have the wireframe change color as he gets closer to defeat. Anyway, we defeat the giant Sigma head, it screams a bunch, and then the entire place starts exploding, and we get some monologues from Sigma where he's like, okay, so first off, I'm not worried if you killed me, because uh, I'm only going to come back stronger. Also, he wonders aloud why Zero didn't side with him, citing him as the last of the Doctor's creations. So, we don't know a whole lot at this point in the X lore about who Sigma is, or where he came from, or where Zero came from, but this basically is our first real hint to Zero's origins as the last of Dr. Wily's creations. If Dr. Light created Mega Man X, Dr. Wily created Zero, and maybe had some influence with Sigma as well, given Zero's supposedly destined to follow him. And as we puzzle over this, of course, we get the requisite ending roll call and the dramatic scene of X and Zero reuniting and watching the sunset as a whole bunch of text scrolls by about Sigma being destroyed and, you know, but is the fighting going to end? Was Light's dream of a world of peaceful coexistence merely a dream? The peace of price is often high, yada yada, nobody even died this time. In fact, we technically gained a plus one person in Zero. <laughs> Anyway, guys, the Mega Man X series is completely serious and reflective, okay? It's got a lot of meaningful stuff to say about war, okay? Maybe it will later on, but right now it's just kind of forcing this in at the last moment. Anyway, yeah, we also get a cast roll and a credits roll, and I stopped taking notes at this point because apparently one of the enemies in this game is named Saver Moon R, and I, my brain just sort of short-circuited when I saw that, and my notes just end there. So, how did I feel about Mega Man X2 overall? It's pretty good. <laughs> like I said, it does feel a little bit like this game was rushed, and that's very, very unfortunate, because I think they were trying to do a lot of stuff in the stages here. The stages have a little bit more, like, creative ideas going on in them. God, we have, like, the weather stuff in Wire Sponge's stage, and we have a ton of weapons that actually have utility functionality in this game, and we have... We have improved mobility over X1. I'm still not, like, super enthusiastic about X2 overall. It is a game that is missing kind of the big downsides that X1 had, and it learned from them. I don't know. 
it doesn't quite execute anything nearly as like strongly just because it is following in the footsteps of X1 and maybe that just has more of an impact because it was X1. Sorting out my thoughts about this game has been pretty difficult, but I think overall I might say I prefer X2 over X1. It might just be familiarity talking and it might just be a light upgrade. For everything that I think X2 does well and has learned from X1, it does feel like there's just like, like if this game had half a year or something more time in its planning and development and stuff, maybe they could have fully realized certain things that just didn't quite land. Anyway, speaking of slightly missed potential, let's talk about the music. So, I'll get a couple bad things out of the way. First off, the music loops in this game are short. Some of the stage loops are like 30 to 40 second loops. The games since Mega Man 1 have generally all been longer than this. Now we're back to some really short and repetitive loops and it's a problem. In addition, I think this game is kind of doing the Mega Man 6 thing, where its music is like the sum average of where all the music in Mega Man X1 was, but not a whole lot is being done with like instrumentation or experimentation or anything to really draw them out. Which is to say, like this is still a good soundtrack. X2 has a lot of like very solid rock music in the style Mega Man X1 wanted to achieve. So if you liked X1 soundtrack, you're probably going to like X2s. I just had a little bit of a harder time picking three standouts this time. To begin with though, we're going to pick Bubble Crab Stage, which is probably the one with the most instrument variety to it. I will say it's very tough to carry an underwater feeling in a rock track. Now, the idea of underwater stages being like ambient musically is something that hasn't really been solidified yet. Arguably the big turning point in video game music for that is Aquatic Ambience in Donkey Kong Country, which by the way is also a 1994 game, but is an end of 1994 game. And an ambient track would sound really out of place in Mega Man. So I don't know, I do think it's neat how they blended together Mega Man's use of like reverb and I guess choral harmonics? I don't know, that's always the mental image in my head when trying to describe Mega Man style of underwater music, and blending that with rock is an interesting something, alright. I want to highlight Magna Centipede stage, which is also the final stage technically because it's using the same music I believe there too. Anyway, that disappointment aside, I actually really like this track because for being a rock track, it actually puts a lot of focus on the percussion, which yeah, there's a few different tracks in this game and the next one that did that, but I feel like this one's been the one that has stuck out to me the most. A lot of the X-Rock themes are carried more by their guitar parts, and that makes sense. I just really like when a lot of the variety is being carried on that front instead, because it's fairly rare. Finally, to wrap this up, we will hit up Crystal Snail's stage. This is the one that best fits the idea of like experimental music, I guess, in that it is toying with mixing up like a lot of 
bells and harmonics and stuff. And then it transitions into an electric guitar to take over for the bells when the most heated part of the melody kicks in. And then the moment that it's done, it fades back out into those bells. And it's really like a weird choice to go from bells to guitar to back. But this one actually makes it feel like a natural progression, I guess. I don't know. I just really like this track. Anyway, that wraps up Manga Man X2. If you liked what you've heard or just want to get in contact, hit me up with an email at whatamipodcastingfor at gmail.com. Hit me up on Twitter at whatamipodcast4, as in the number 4. Stop by waipf.podbean.com for the RSS feeds or the latest episodes, or check your podcast provider of choice. Next week, we're going to finally finish up 1994's 1 million Mega Man games that were released by heading back to the Game Boy for the last of the Mega Man World series. Spoilers, this one is not a port game, so brace yourself for a surprisingly new adventure. Until then, I've been Garlisle. This has been What Am I Podcasting For? And just remember, they turned a cool swordsman dude with a giant blade and a cocky smirk into a platform-deploying platform platform. I will never understand what that boss is supposed to be. Anyway, this is also the first scene where we get, like... Any fodder for the X and Zero romantic shippers, considering they're watching the ending sunset together. Hmm. You know, maybe that line belongs to the bloopers instead. That's a topic we're going to have to cover one of these days, isn't it?